friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour Jamie Ivy podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so excited that you're here with us today. Every week on this show, I invite a girlfriend to join me, and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Before we get to our guest, I want to thank one of our sponsors for making the show possible, and that is Crane and Canopy. Crane and Canopy is an online bedding brand that wants to give you the most blissful night's sleep with their luxurious duvet covers, quilts, and sheets. Crane and Canopy bedding combines amazing quality with chic, modern style. Their bedding collection is made from the finest cotton, so it's silky soft and incredibly comfortable. It's also thoughtfully designed. Their duvet covers include built-in corner ties to secure your comforter and zippers to make closing the cover easy. That's so brilliant because that's my least favorite part. Their bedding comes in a variety of stylish patterns and colors, making it simple to find bedding that's perfect for you. Crane and Canopy also makes shopping for bedding easier than ever. Returns are free and easy, and a dedicated customer service team awaits to answer your design questions. Head to craneandcanopy.com forward slash Jamie and use the code Jamie to get 10% off your entire order. That's crane, C-R-A-N-E, and canopy.com forward slash Jamie. Use the code Jamie to get 10% off. Guys, today you're listening to episode number 149, and my guest is Virginia Cumberbatch. I met Virginia through our mutual friend, Haley, who was a guest on this show. Remember, she's the CEO of Kamek. She's on number 131. And after we finished recording, she said, hey, I have a friend here in town that you're going to love and you need to have on the show. And I said, I love you, Haley, and I trust you. So she introduced me to Virginia, and the rest is history. Virginia lives here in Austin. She's actually a native Austinite, which is rare these days in our big city. But we had such a great conversation today about lots of different things, the intersection of pop culture and social justice. We talked about racial issues and the church. She has a book released in November that we talked a little bit about called As We Saw It, the story of integration at the University of Texas at Austin. Virginia began this book, As We Saw It, as a graduate research assistant for the UT Division of Diversity and Community Engagement back in 2014 while she was a student at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Policy. She now serves as director of the Community Engagement Center. I loved hearing Virginia talk about her family life growing up, the way that she loves her family, and how her family modeled this integrated life for her. We talk about racial justice and the role of Christians, and we also talk about feminism. You're going to love my conversation with Virginia today. All right, guys, you know I'm a fan of Instagram. If you want to share anything about the show that you loved, find me there. I'm at Jamie Ivy, And while you're there, find Virginia. You'll love following her because she wears the cutest clothes ever. And so follow her. It's VA Cumberbatch over on Instagram. Okay, guys, July Book Club is in full swing. We are loving it. Tickets went on sale Monday to come to my house for the book club. But let me tell you, I'm ready to announce the August book. And I am so stinking excited to announce this book for you for so many reasons. And I'm going to tell you at the end of the show what it is. But I want to tell you, you don't want to miss this book. It's our final book club of the summer. It's going to be one of your favorites and my favorites. And I'll tell you at the end what it is and how you can get it. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Virginia. Hey, Virginia, welcome to the happy hour. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to have you. My, we have a mutual friend, and that's actually how you and I got connected, is Haley Robinson. Yes. Uh, who has been on the show before. She's the CEO of Kamek, which everyone loved that show. And it made everyone want to just go outside and go camping or oh, that's awesome. trail riding or something. Are you a, Do you go camping? I'm not a huge camper in the sense that I don't do it a lot, but I'm definitely open to it. I have been camping and I do enjoy nature. I love running outside town lake and and hiking and those sort of things. I think I'm kind of like maybe what you just described as well. Like I like being outside. I like running outside. 
but I really, really enjoy sleeping in a bed. And so that's <laughs> that's like where the line is drawn for well, me in the sand. <laughs> we're more like glampers, it sounds like. Glamping you know, is nice exactly, yes, <laughs> a nice bed, but you still get to walk outside. There's exactly. that. I like that. I like that. Okay. So you mentioned Town Lake and you are a native Austinite. Am I right about that? Yes, ma'am. Which let's just be honest, people who don't live here don't care about this conversation we're about to have. But I think it's interesting that I am not a native Austinite. I've been here almost nine years, but you meet very few people who have been here their whole life. Yeah, we're definitely unicorns. We're definitely breed. unicorns. You're <laughs> unicorns. You can say that we're born and raised in Austin because it's definitely become sort of a transplant city. Totally. I love all the bumper stickers that are like, um, don't move here. It sucks. You know, (laughs) don't come. I say all the time on this show that Austin's just one of my favorite cities. Now, did you go to University of Texas? Not for undergrad. I went to college in Massachusetts at Williams, but I did go to UT for graduate school. Okay. You came back home for that. And then you've been here ever since. Okay. So if you're new to someone who's listening, introduce yourself and tell what you do in life. Sure. So born and raised here in Austin. um, And then when I got back after undergrad, really just started to feel connected to a conversation around equity and access. And so pursued sort of opportunities to do that through board positions and volunteering. And then grad school kind of served as a transition period for me. Got my master's in public policy so that I could find a role that would equip me with the resources to really address issues around equity, access, and disparities when it comes to race. So now I serve as the director of the Community Engagement Center and Social Justice Institute at the University of Texas. And that's just always been, I felt like, both the calling that God has put on my life as well as a passion for me, which is service. But using people's stories, you know, sometimes I think, as we all know right now in the political climate, talking about policy and infrastructure can just kind of get overwhelming and over people's heads. But I think when we talk about stories, how there's a trickle down effect around systems and policies, how that affects people's lives. That's when I feel like people are able to develop empathy and understanding. And so I really feel a sense of purpose around reconciling broken systems and making people more aware and less ignorant around the ways in which we've built up disparities in our community, both locally here in Austin, as well as a country. Okay, that's amazing. And I feel like that I just entered into a conversation with a brilliant person and I am going to love this show so much because <laughs> you're going to teach us all so much, Virginia. But I, I want to ask, what sparked that interest when you said like access to equity, all kinds of stuff? What actually, where did that come from in your life that that became a point of your interest that you're willing to, you know, devote your master's program to and your job? Where did that come from? I really feel like it's family. You know, I joke all the time, you know, some people, you know, their families, you know, owned a grocery store, or their families, you know, were, were farmers, whatever. And I say that our family business is service. So when I think about like my grandparents, particularly my maternal grandparents, my grandfather's passed, but he was a pastor, and had such a heart for homeless ministry. And then my maternal grandmother is a professor but has spent her entire life working for education equity in LA. And I just really saw such a a model for what I kind of call an integrated life, where there's not a clear sort of separation between what you do from nine to five, your family, service, 
and your walk with Christ. Like it's, it's all blended. Mm-hmm. And so I just really saw that model sort of lived out for me, you know, even though my grandparents were in California, that definitely had an impact on the way that my parents lived their life and how they raised us. You know, I was fortunate to grow in a home which with highly educated parents with resources to send us to great schools, but I was exposed very early to the various lived experiences of people in Austin. Mm. And, you know, just like little things, like the way in which, you know, we connected to different communities in Austin or the fact that we would have strangers at Thanksgiving dinner because my mother, you know, met them and heard their story and they didn't have a place to eat dinner, things like that. And there wasn't a time that my parents weren't sitting on nonprofit boards and spending their time like that, or, you know, they're both pastors. And so it was just something that I observed growing up and it kind of just felt like, oh, this is what we're born to do. Mm -hmm. You know, regardless of what my passions are, my passions can be leveraged to serve. And so I've just taken that into, you know, my studies and into my work and yeah, it just feels really familiar to me because I feel like that's sort of the legacy that's been passed on. I love the word you use is that integrated life. And I don't know if you made that up or if that's a real term for this, <laughs> but I'll give you credit for it. Um, Thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's all you. Uh, integrated life. And I think that as Christ followers, I would think that this would be our end goal, right? Yeah. Is that everything, like our first identity would be a follower of Jesus. And then everything kind of just kind of flows underneath that. And I think that even if, you know, you're talking about how your parents pass this down to you, I'm thinking even like as a mom, how do I make that a reality? And and I appreciated your examples as well, because I know that people are listening and thinking, yeah, I want my kids to say that when they grow up. Like, I think that's what we're all saying is like, I like how Virginia saying this about her parents. I want my kids to be able to say that about me. And I feel, and I'm going to ask you, I think your parents did a great job of it because obviously, you know, they've created this, this, these passions and loves inside of you. But I feel like this is harder done than said, if that makes sense. For sure. And so what do you, what's your advice? I know that you gave us some examples for what your parents did, but if you were talking to, and I'm using parents as an example, because you're saying that you, you saw this modeled out for you, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a parent thing. What's your mm-hmm. advice for actually making all these things mesh together? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily something that just like clicks automatically. You know, obviously there's life experience thrown in there. But for me, really, I think I saw it truly sort of start to click or manifest in college where I realized I was really passionate about storytelling. I realized I was really passionate about history and sort of identifying those things. But I also understood that I guess I didn't want to be one of those people where it was like, okay, this is my life, you know, as a Christian, mm-hmm. I go to Bible study, I hang out with these people who have the same pair, you know, under, you know, paradigm around how to live their life on these days. And then, you know, Monday through Thursday, my life looks like this. I play soccer, I go to school and I'm interested in these things. And to me, it just seemed one, just like a lot of work. Yeah. (laughs) Separate identities. And two, just such a missed opportunity. And so, you know, I feel like I had peers where they lived very separate lives, not in the sense that they were hypocritical, but in the sense that they felt like their walk as a Christian only needed to look like this in these designated spaces. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that short changes sort of like who God is and what he's capable of doing through you. 
And so, you know, I know it sounds like cliche or corny, but like I, I was actually just listening to a podcast that Jeremy Lin did, who's a basketball player mm-hmm. and an outspoken Christian. And he talks about all the time. He's like, well, you know, I just, I play for Christ. I think a lot of people are like, okay, dude, like you play basketball, you get paid millions of dollars. Right. Like you're not playing for Christ. And I'm like, no, he is. That 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 is the ethos, the essence about mm-hmm. why he does things, how he approaches it, how he talks to his teammates. And so even though there may not be something like tangible that you see like in your everyday work where you're talking to someone about Christ, there's a a way in which you approach that work that is through that lens. Mm. And so I saw that as just sort of a thread through like what my parents did. You know, like my dad's an attorney and he's also a father and he's also an African-American man that advocates for issues around that. Mm -hmm. But the common thread about all those things, he uses this phrase, he goes, you know, I'm called to bring about the shalom of the people, you know, the community I'm called to, which is Mm -hmm. peace of God. And I'm like, okay, if I were to look at my dad's life, I can see that as a trend through everything that he does. Mm. Yeah, Uh, I think even when you just explained it like that, I think it just kind of will click with people a little bit of just like what whatever space you're in, because we hold a lot of different spaces. Yeah. Is are my intentions still the same with like maybe even like giving God glory and everything? Mm -hmm. Um, And that sounds kind of churchy, but you know what I mean? It's true. And I think everyone finds their own. Like, I think, you know, if we're thinking of ourselves as like a company, we all have like a, every company has like a tagline, a brand mm-hmm. tagline. And I think we all find what that like sentence or word is about what God has called us to do. And we just bring that to every space that we occupy. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Do you have, have you created a tagline for yourself? <laughs> um, <laughs> if I don't not, know. you should. I should, you know, if I'm going to say it, I probably should. <laughs> I always bring about the word reconciliation. Uh-huh. That's a word that I use a lot, or I use the word like cultivate, like creating, you know, opportunities for those type of conversations. I think that's good. From what I know about you, I think those would line up with what you do. And you're doing that in every aspect as well. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Okay. So I want to go back to something you said earlier about storytelling. Mm-hmm. And there's something that I've realized just through even doing the podcast and listening to people's stories is that when you hear someone's story, it's almost like you're not as removed from the situation as you were before. Mm-hmm. And so I think about this a lot just in our climate, like you said, our political climate, culture, all these things that are happening. And I'll give you an example, and we don't need to talk, we're not going to talk about this policy by any means, but I'm going to talk about how when you hear someone's story, it changes everything. Recently, I have an acquaintance that I know who was telling me the story about how her parents are here in Texas illegally, and they've been here for like 25 years, right? Long time. They didn't just show up. And as we're talking, she's telling me about the plan that they have, if her parents were to get deported back to Mexico and how she would be in charge of raising her siblings and all these things. And it was, for me, it was like the story all of a sudden of like, no longer is this just a policy I hear about on TV, you know, but now it's like, this is a person's face that I'm looking at. And so is that kind of what you're talking about when you're saying bringing people's stories to bring awareness and, you know, cultivate conversations about reconciliation and that type of stuff? That's exactly what I'm, you know, talking about. I mean, you know, I think sometimes when you start talking about issues of like, bias or discrimination or racism, you know, our automatic sort of response is to be defensive, right? But in actuality, we in some ways can only be responsible for our lived experience. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times ignorance and bias and prejudice are built out because you haven't been exposed to or you have siloed yourself mm-hmm. to only have a certain 
experience. And right. so stories have this amazing opportunity without preaching to people, without convicting people to just share a story and like to watch someone's entire sort of um, understanding and opinion shift because all of a sudden they have this new information and new exposure, I think is so powerful. And I think biblical too, when you think about like all of the, you know, uh, parables that we read about, I mean, those stories allow us to see God in a different way. And mm-hmm. I think stories allow us to see people in a different way. And a lot of times, you know, particularly in America, I think a lot of our issues are one, that we don't put ourselves in positions to hear those stories. And two, on a, as, as a whole, we've done a really poor job of documenting stories, right? When you think about history, the history we learned about in elementary school all the way to high school, it's a very Eurocentric perspective, doesn't tell the whole story. And so when you think about people who grew up in homogeneous spaces and then in school, they were never exposed to the contributions of brown and black people mm-hmm. or Asian people, then their understanding of the world is that this country was built by white people. Mm-hmm. This country right. is better because of it. Right. And so when you bring in stories, you know, a lot of the work that I've done is around history. So documenting the first black students to ever go to UT and my thesis in undergrad was around, you know, black women. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's this, these incredible narratives about people who've contributed to the space that I've gained from. Mm. And all of a sudden you feel more. And I think the same thing goes to your experience around immigration. A lot of that mm. comes from people feeling like they're being like infiltrated as a community. Right. Mm-hmm. First of all, this land was Mexico <laughs> first. <laughs> so let's start there. And so, yeah, I just, I think storytelling is just such a powerful tool. I agree with you so much. And I feel like, and and I would love to hear your opinion on this as well, especially with the example that you gave with school. I feel like with leaders like yourself, and I, I can think of a handful of other leaders in our city that are working towards changing the narrative a little bit and bringing out some stories that maybe haven't been told and some true stories that maybe have not been heard by people. I feel like, and I'm 39, so I'll put myself in this generation, is that I feel an utter responsibility to my children to maybe expose and inform and educate them on things that I didn't get and that honestly they might not get without me giving it to them. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely a reality. I mean, with that, if it weren't for my parents and my grandparents and the books they made us read during the summer and the conversations we had at the dinner table, my understanding of this world and history would be totally different because the textbooks, you know, I mean, you need to think about it. Primarily, people would probably walk away from like a high school education with knowing like three things about people of color in this country. Mm, yeah. Martin Luther King, uh-huh. and like he's the only person that like gets talked about when it comes to civil rights, maybe like Mahatma Gandhi or something, mm-hmm. if that, and then like Cesar Chavez. And there's like, okay, we've covered it. Those are the only three contributions in the last 150 mm-hmm. years. And it's obviously super unfortunate. And yeah, I think because we're, you know, we grew up, with internet, but it wasn't until like the latter part of our lives, we have full access and like your children, I mean, they've got information out the wazoo Mm -hmm. at the tip of their hands. And so I think for parents and mentors and things like that, it's directing them into like good information and making it a part of their own life experience to pursue 
information outside of the spaces that they occupy. Like, like, yes, you go to school and that's great, but like, what else can you gather that may be falling through the cracks? Totally. Yeah. And, and just, I like, because I'm white, I think I can speak to white parents right now is I think that there is this obligation to that. I feel like we have, and I take it very seriously for me personally, educating my children who are black, obviously, but I don't differentiate between educating my son who's white as well is I think it needs to matter to everybody. And so I think that's what I like to see is for mom friends of mine who have no black children, that this matters the same to them as it is to um, myself with black children or a mom who's black raising black kids. And so that's for sure. That's what I always want to stress is that this isn't just like something that black people need to be aware of and learn more and teach their children. This is everybody. Everybody needs to teach their children about all kinds of different races and people of color because it matters how you're raising your kids as well, your white kids. Oh, for sure. I mean, and it serves that information means something different, right? Mm -hmm. Or I think for African-American children, it's affirmation. Mm -hmm. It's affirmation that people that look like me who may have similar life experiences as me have done X, Y, and Z. And I think people who don't look like that, it's understanding that this world is made better by all of us, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I think that is the myth that needs to be debunked, right? It's super frustrating. Like I even said this about my master's program. It's like conversations around policy and racial discrimination shouldn't just be for the five people who happen to have an interest in that. That's information that I would hope anyone mm-hmm. who wants to go into the field of policymaking walks away with, because if we're not equipped, then we have no ability to serve everybody. I agree. I agree. Can I tell you about something really awful that happened last night? Sure. That please. has to do with this. I, Eric, my husband and I haven't even had a chance to talk about it on our own, but we brought it up at dinner last night afterwards. So we were at an event at my kid's school And it is a predominantly white school. And they were doing some kind of, it takes too long to explain. They were doing some kind of game and you had to make a screen name, right? And so all of them were up on the screen so everybody in this auditorium could see it, right? And someone, like I cannot even believe this, someone typed in their screen name was White Power. Oh, wow. I know, right? And my husband and I both saw it and thought, holy crap, did we just see that? And so we kind of put it in the back of our brain, like we need to bring this up, you know, cause we're, re- we really want to be proactive with these things. And so we're at dinner and my oldest son, who's our only biological. So he's white. He actually brought it up first. And I was like, okay, okay. good. So our whole family's around dinner. And, and so we bring it, he brings it up. He's like, can y'all believe what you saw? And I was like, yeah, I can't believe that. And so we t- shared it with our other kids who are um, 12, 11 and nine. And two of them are, they're all three adopted, two from Haiti, one domestic and so we shared it with everybody and we're like, man, have you ever heard anyone say this? Has anyone? And they're all like, no, 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 which, you know, thank God, but that doesn't mean we just saw it. It happens. And so we had a really great conversation once again about how some people think that because of your skin color, that you're better than people with other skin colors is how we kind of talked about it. Yeah. But man, I just, I want, I was hoping and praying that there were other families last night with all white children that talking about that as well. Thing. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And not just laugh it off, but that would say the same thing to their children, that that's not okay. Look, I I got myself all worked up again for (laughs) Jenya. No, I mean, it's it's definitely interesting. I mean, I, I grew up in a situation where I was one of, if not the only black person. So I went to a 
prep school in elementary school, I was the only black person in my grade. And then I went to another prep school for high school and I was one of three, but I was the only black female. And, you know, particularly in spaces where you're like, okay, everyone's supposed to be highly educated and Mm -hmm. progressive and all of this. And then you have these moments of just like jaw drops because you're like, so you don't see what's wrong with this conversation. Mm. You don't see what's wrong with this room right now. And yeah, and there's a there's a power like, you know, we call it sometimes like black fatigue because you're like, Ugh, I got to be the one to say something again. Mm-hmm. Like I'm the one that's pointed out. And you're like, how does no one else see this? Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the fact that you're having that conversation with your children, particularly at that age, is so important because you equip them to be able to. Uh, respond to those type of events or ha- or facilitate those conversations as they get older. Okay, so you do a lot with racial reconciliation here in Austin and through your work that you do at UT. Am I right? That's part of what you do there. Yes. So let's talk about that. You mentioned something to me in an email about the role of racial reconciliation for us who are followers of Jesus. Mm-hmm. How do you see that playing out versus, or is there a versus, you know, people who are not believers? Do you see us having a higher responsibility in this? What does that look like for you, for believers in that mattering to them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I don't know if it's a versus. I would hope that it is something that, regardless of our faith, you know, mm-hmm. we see as an issue to address in America, but around the world. But I just find it super hypocritical as the church. When I say the church, I mean like the body of Christ, not necessarily an individual congregation for that not to be a part of our, you know, everyday dialogue, for it not to be brought up in individual congregations to kind of, again, separate it, right? It's mm-hmm. like, okay, cool. On Sundays and maybe like Bible study, we have this experience talking about Christ and then we go back out in the world. And I think we do have a great opportunity because we are supposed to have the opportunity to demonstrate God's love and God's love to me is so aligned with this concept of racial reconciliation. The Mm. idea that, I mean, God created us with all colors and creeds. And so for for us to truly be the body of Christ, that means that we're loving everyone unconditionally, regardless mm. of color. And I think, you know, I've seen some some churches here in Austin do a really great job of being facilitators of that conversation. Because for a lot of people, when we talk about, you know, silos, which I don't think are always intentional, it's just where you're raised and who your mm-hmm. friends are, things like that. The church may be the only opportunity, the only space where they get exposed to that type of conversation. Mm. And for me, what a wonderful space for that to be. It's safe, right? You're hopefully connected to people. You're in a an environment where you hopefully don't feel threatened because, you know, I, I mean, I have a hope you don't feel threatened. In right, your church. right. Um, but to me, it's like, why would we not use this space to talk about it? And particularly, you know, I, and I, I think this is all around. This needs to happen in predominantly black churches, predominantly Latino churches, Asian churches, white churches, and churches that have the opportunity to be multicultural because racism isn't just a white person problem, right? right? It's a conversation we all have to have. Mm -hmm. We all have to feel equipped about. And if we're not doing it in the church, then I don't think we're truly living out what God has called us to do as Christians. Mm -hmm. And I think there's such a great opportunity there because you're exposing people who don't have any other space for that type of conversation. Because of their, because of where they, how they do life, where they live, exactly. the way that, yeah, Because of it. the spaces they occupy. Mm-hmm. You know, ordinarily, if you live in a neighborhood with people who just live like you, if you grew up in a community or, you know, 
parents, grandparents who don't necessarily see eye to eye in terms mm-hmm. of like, you know, the, the value of people. And I think the church, if we do it correctly, then we can do it with love. And I don't know if you're familiar with once a year on Good Friday, there's a gathering of about 30 churches across the city. And the big initiative is called In the City for the City. And they host a big Good Friday service. This year it was at the Frank Irwin Center. Girl, I was there. Oh, you were there. Uh-huh. So you know. And I thought, you know, what, you know, typically every year they have some like nonprofit that proceeds go to. And this year it was I think it's Be the Bridge. Be the Bridge. Uh-huh. 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 My, my friend Tasha started that. She's been on the show too, if you want to look her up. Yes, I do remember her being on, on the show. And I'm like, what an amazing space. Like in the Frank Irwin Center with however many thousands of believers across the city, you know, representing all different cultures for us to talk about it here, you know, because that's the best place for it to happen. Yeah. And And I think for some people, it was probably new for them. Maybe it was uncomfortable for them. But as I tell people, like, if you're worried about feeling uncomfortable about things, then, like, we have bigger problems. Like, that's (laughs) how we grow. And also, like, you feel uncomfortable for, what, three hours on a Friday? It's like, Mm -hmm. let's compare that to people who feel, who have opportunity to feel uncomfortable every day of their life. Right, right. It's their norm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right, guys, I know that you're loving this conversation with Virginia, but first, I want to thank our sponsors. BarkBox is a monthly delivery of all natural treats and super fun toys curated to match your dog's unique needs, including allergies and chew preferences. It's a great way to try a variety of USA and Canada-made treats and unique toys from local and small businesses that you may not otherwise be able to find. Plus, each box is centered around a different theme like country fair, bark ball, Poo York City or Brooklyn Hipster to keep dogs engaged, interested, and happy. And when your dog falls in love with something from the box, you can easily find it again at BarkShop.com, the BarkBox app, or by texting BarkBox. For dogs, it's like the joy of a million belly scratches. But if for some reason your dog doesn't like something in the box, BarkBox will send you something they will love for free because they're all about dog happiness. Better yet, every BarkBox ships free within the continental U.S., Guys, you know my dog Landry, and let me tell you, this Friday, we're getting a brand new dog. Yes, the Ivies are about to have two dogs. We have a Labradoodle already, and we're about to add a Golden Doodle, and Landry loved the box that she got. So guys, right now, visit BarkBox.com slash happy hour and get an extra premium toy for free in your BarkBox every month when you subscribe to a six or 12-month plan and select yes, please when asked if you have a playful pup. That's BarkBox.com slash happy hour for an extra premium toy. Okay, guys, I also want to thank Noonday Collection for sponsoring today's show. You all know that I'm a Noonday fan. So this summer, the happy hour and myself were teaming up to do a little join with Jamie promotion. That means that if you go to jamieivy.noondaycollection.com, you will see all the fun, free, I said free, free Noonday products added to your starter kit this summer just because you're a listener. So if you've heard of Noonday before and you've been thinking about becoming an ambassador, now is your time. Also, let me remind you that the new fall line launches August 3rd. That's less than a month away. So now is the time to see the new collection and get in on the start of a new season. Again, guys, if you want to join and become a Noonday ambassador, now is your chance to get free stuff, which the bracelets they're giving you are some of my favorites. JamieIvy.NoondayCollection.com. Okay, here is the rest of my conversation with Virginia. 
Um, I was super proud of Tasha and Be the Bridge and everything about that Good Friday service. On a lighter note from Good Friday, did you stay for the Kirk Franklin concert? I did. It was awesome. I like relived, I feel like, my middle school days. (laughs) We were down on the floor because my husband was also one of the worship leaders that were up there. We probably were next to each other. Didn't didn't even know it. Okay, so my daughter's story, who's nine, she happened to be down in the very, very front, almost by the soundboard with Aaron when Kirk Franklin started. And when he invited everyone down there, she ran down there and she just had so much fun. Oh, that's awesome. So much fun. And I... I can't believe I'm going to say this publicly, but whatever. <laughs> when Kirk Franklin was singing, I'm like, this is a man who's like putting on a show. I'll admit, I was telling Tasha, I'd never seen, I've never been to a Kirk Franklin show. Mm-hmm. And I was watching and I was thinking, this guy is an entertainer. Right. And I was going to say that I kind of, when I was watching him, I got kind of blushed. Like he was just <laughs> dancing. It, he puts on a really good show. He does. And I think it's kind of incredible you think about it. It's like, this man doesn't sing. And yet we're so entertained by him. Like, I think sometimes we forget, we're like, he doesn't sing. There's really no reason for him to be on stage, except like he plays piano sometimes, and to like hype the crowd. He's Otherwise, an entertainer. You know, just be behind the scenes writing the music. But yeah, he's phenomenal. I think that was like my second time seeing him, but I thought he did an amazing job. That was awesome. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed the Good Friday service and how they brought in that as their kind of recipient for their offering for that year, but also just to have give them the stage presence um, to talk about it and for the whole city to see that. Well, not the whole city because there's a lot of people that live here, but all (laughs) the people that were there on Good Friday got to see that. Um, Okay, so... I think that we could talk about that for a long time, but I have two other things I want to talk to you about, okay? So awesome. first is this, and I am so interested to hear what you have to say about this because you mentioned something in an email to me, and it was t- where you talked about this perceived conflict between feminism and Christianity. Mm. Yeah. I want you to expand on that for me real quick. <laughs> well, I, you know, let me just first admit that this is a new territory for me. Okay. I feel like God must be trying to tell me something because in the last year, I've been brought into so many conversations around like women empowerment and feminism. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't naturally a space that I felt like I had expertise in or even wanted to be a part of. It started last summer. I got to go to the United Women's Summit, White House Summit um, in D.C. And then I got asked to go to like all these women conferences and speak. And then I was like, what is God trying to tell me? Like, I like maybe I need to be more aligned with this conversation. But yeah, I think, you know, growing up as a Christian and growing up in a household and a family who had very strong female figures, you know, I I never, ever felt like my gender was Mm -hmm. limiting or a threat, you know, this might sound weird, but I have conversations a lot with women of color where there's always this duality where you have to lead with one, right? Are you a woman first? Are you a black person first? Mm -hmm. And I always led with like, I'm a black woman, you know? And so it never felt like an issue for me. Then I'm I'm realizing, you know, if I'm truly going to walk in this space of advocacy or reaching equity, even though it's not my story where I've ever felt like Mm. being a woman has uh, discredited me or, you know, I felt threatened by it to truly advocate for people. I have to put myself in shoes where there are women whose gender has limited them Mm -hmm. in some ways um, and particularly for women of color. And so putting that kind of hat on. And then I just felt really frustrated, particularly with this last election 
where you hear a lot of the conversation around feminism, which was strongly driven with like the Hillary campaign Mm -hmm. and the like, uh, the future is female taglines and all that stuff. And obviously as a rebuttal to the awfulness of our now 45th president, that it became such a like one to two topic platform, right? It's abortion and the rights to contraceptives and it's Planned Parenthood. And that's what feminism is. Mm, And I see. Okay. Okay. If we're really going to talk about feminism, which I think is actually a Christian concept, but it, you know, in the sense that God sees us as equal, but, and I think has been, when we think about it secularized, it becomes more political and policy around, you know, women taking up the head and equal pay and things like that. If we're truly going to talk about it, then it's hypocritical to ostracize Christian women who are vocal about how they feel God, what God says about our bodies. Mm -hmm. Like if we're truly advocating for equity of all women, empowerment of all women, then they should have a seat at the table or we should have a seat at the table, Mm. you know, because I can align with equal pay and I can align with leadership roles and I can align with little girls being able to go to school and get educated just like their brothers, you know? Right. Um, And so I just, You know, I went and talked about it at this brunch a few months ago. And I was like, equity for women means all women. If you leave women of color and the varied experiences we have, the complex experiences we have off the table, then you're not advocating for women. And Mm -hmm. if you leave women whose faith drives them to have a certain perspective about the way they protect their bodies, Mm -hmm. then you're not advocating for all women. And so that's what I think of when I think of like feminism and the church. You know, I think a lot of times in certain Christian paradigms, we've like distanced ourselves from feminism because it's like man bashing or it's not respecting our husbands or all of those politics. But I don't think they need to be mutually exclusive because God believes that we're equal. God believes that, you know, we may have different callings, but we both serve a purpose in the kingdom. I think this is a great conversation because I feel like what you just said at the end is something that I thought of when you told me about this, is I feel like as in the church, we almost run from the word feminism Mm -hmm. because of what it means in a secular stance, though, because you're right, the the election showed that. If you're going to say this, and these are the three things that it means, and, and then that's it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so how do we as Christ followers who are women and you as a Christ follower who's a woman of color, how do we find our place um, in this conversation? How have you found that? Tell us. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it's, it's been sort of like, okay, if this is where I feel like God's calling me to be, you know, I bring up the word equity all the time. It's like there is no sometimes, right? Equity means we all get to be a part of the conversation. And so if that's the case, and I, you know, and, and when I think about how that is translated in terms of who God is, God is saying that like, my love knows no boundaries, then we should all be able to take part in that conversation. So for me, it's been about, you know, my biggest frustration beyond just sort of like how the church sees feminism has been sort of a lack of opportunity for women of color to take part in the conversation. Mm. You know, I just think about like even the women's march Mm -hmm. on the day after the election. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to go because I felt like it was so specific in terms of what that meant. Like if I was marching, I was marching for these two issues. Uh 
Um, and I was just like, I don't, and I ended up going and it ended up being a better experience than I thought it would be. But there is a frustration sometimes that a certain ideology gets to define what this movement means or what that word means. And it leaves so many experiences out of the picture. And it's like, okay, well, what about, you know, in some ways, feminism to even like walk in that is a privilege, right? Totally, you know, yes. First of all, you had, you don't, you, that means you were, you didn't have a job you had to go to. Right. You got to go to the march. Uh-huh. You know, you have the resources mm-hmm. and like, you yeah. know, the scholarship to take part in this very political conversation. And there's some women who are in such survival mode that they're like, okay, you can have that feminism stuff. I'm trying to like pay bills right. and feed my children. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so when we don't take all of that into account, to me, that's really frustrating. Yeah. And, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I would actually love to have more of this conversation with my mother because you know, my mother's a, a pastor. She's a pastoral counselor. Mm-hmm. And um, she does a lot of marriage counseling, things like that. And, you know, we talked about it actually last year at the Good Friday service, that there were no females on stage, you know, like each pastor of these congregations comes up and gives a few words. And we were like, that's problematic. Why are there no female pastors represented? And I think the church should play a role in how we kind of, I don't want to say reclaim, because I think everyone should be able to to identify with that conversation as they please. But I think the church has a role in empowering women. Um, and I, I think I sent you that link. Uh, there was a hashtag going around. It was like things Christian women hear mm-hmm. like in the church. And Relevant did a really good article about that, which is like the church has played a role. In, and I, when I say church, again, I say collectively, not individual churches, mm-hmm. but in some ways sort of diminishing what women can do and how they do it. And I, I feel like we could play a role in empowering young women and giving them ownership of how God sees them and how God wants to protect their bodies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, seeing how, you know, people have been you know, mistreated or abused and then they don't feel that support from the church because it, because it's not talked about or yeah. they don't feel like, you know, and so I just feel like it's an important conversation that again, we should take opportunity to take part in. I think it is a great conversation. And I was, I was happy to see this year at the service, they had some women up there with yes. their husbands and they had some women worship. A lot of the songs were led by um, women, women as well yeah. up there on the stage. And, you know, I think that it's a, it, I think it gets kind of sticky sometimes with, you know, just different maybe theological preferences on, you know, women as pastors and those type of things. And, you know, I always look at my husband as just like such a, you know, phenomenal example of this in my life is that um, I never feel as though I can't do something um, because I'm a woman and he constantly cheers me on in ministry and leadership and all types of things. Does that mean I'll ever be like a pastor at our church? No, but... I think that that role is something that just I subscribe to theologically, but I don't think it takes me out of the conversation either. That's exactly what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, and that's why I think, you know, I think it's dangerous to try to define it for everyone. I yeah. think you know, that's part of the human experience yeah. is that we all interpret things differently. I think as long as we're, we're all, you know, we're down with Jesus. That should down be with, I'm down with Jesus. And, yeah. <laughs> and and I think too, when you're and, talking about the Christians and the, in the conversation, I think I could even personally say this might be a little bit true for me. And I think I'm getting better at owning it is I feel like sometimes when we want to enter in those conversations and you address this so well, 
that we feel as though it's automatically telling the world, oh, that I'm pro this. Yeah. When I'm really not. But I feel like if I'm like pro women in this conversation, then I'm also pro, I'm just gonna throw it out there, pro abortion. Yeah, no. And it's a real, that honestly has been what has driven like my trepidation or like my like, okay, so that's not for me. This is my right. And I think what God has kind of done in putting me in these spaces, like, I mean, like five conferences in a year, which a year ago I've been like, I would never attend those because I, or speak on that. Because I think what God's saying is like, if we remove ourselves, then we don't have the opportunity to impact the conversation. Right. That's Um, good. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's the same thing in terms of like political affiliation. It's like, I think both parties are crazy. I think both parties are not what God sees for, you know, how we should all live our lives. Um, in terms of inserting myself in the conversation, it's like, I don't align with all these things, mm. you know, yeah. um, because I don't think that's what God wants us to do. But I can still advocate in this space. Yeah, we can advocate for women. Exactly. Because we're down with Jesus. Because we're down with Jesus. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, okay, Virginia, one more question, and then I'm going to get to the good stuff of what you're loving and what you're reading. Okay, yeah. so you told me this. I'm not throwing you under the bus, but you told me <laughs> that you're dating somebody, and we don't need to talk about that at all. But you made it sound as though this was like, it's totally like new, and you're feeling this out and different and all that kind of stuff. Why has that experience been like that for you? I feel like I would need like a five hour therapy session (laughs) to totally talk about that. Well, we don't have to um, do that. No, no, I know. But um, yeah, I think it's probably a mixture of things. You know, I've, I've had this conversation with some of my best friends of late. I didn't really date in high school. And my, I keep saying I really didn't. I didn't date in high Mm -hmm. school. I think part of that was just like, it wasn't like a big deal to me. I went to a really small school I think part of that was also because I was the only black female in the school and it just never seemed like, oh, well, this isn't going to happen. And then in college, it was just like I friend zoned everybody. (laughs) Yeah. And I think part of it is just like, you know, my friends joke about me all the time. They're like, oh, my gosh, you're so confident and like outgoing and outspoken in every area of your life except this. Like, Mm -hmm. what's up with that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think part of that is, you know, I think as a Christian woman in spaces like college is like weeding out people who like, you know, just you just don't align. Right. On like how we, we don't live our lives. Uh-huh. You know, we can be friends, but clearly this is just not. And so I, I think I've held so dearly to that. Like, I don't want to put myself in a position where I have to feel guilty about something and yeah. you ultimately resent me about something. And I think when I got out of college, it was just, I was so kind of head down driven about like the work I was doing just wasn't a priority. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I I think, you know, I definitely feel like God is calling me to be in a relationship at some point in my life and to be married. Um, I think part of it now is just like being intentional about it. Right. Mm -hmm. I think there's definitely a a vibe you get off to people when like you're looking and when you're not looking. (laughs) I clearly have given off the not looking vibe. (laughs) Yeah. In college, I used to get this like rebuttal from guys all the time. They're like, yeah, you're kind of the girl you marry. You're not really the girl you date. And I was like, well, that's code for something else. I feel like. Okay. Well, it's not bad though. No, it's not bad. It's not bad. But it was basically like, we'll hit you up when we're like 30. (laughs) We'll come come back. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think I kind of talked to you about that via email, kind of driven by that hashtag that was circulating, which is like things that Christian women hear, particularly around dating and 
and all, you know, there's so many varied things that are shared with us in the church and put on, I think, the women unfairly and not men um, about what that means. But yeah, I think it's definitely a, a new experience for me and, and one that I'm open to. And I think what I've learned for me is that, you know, I'm, I'm super transparent and like confident in all these other spaces of my life. And this is the one space where I like struggle to be vulnerable. And like, mm. I think that is some, it's such a skill to learn that's needed to like have healthy relationships in all dynamics is like learning to be vulnerable and like not have your guard up. And so I think that's something that God's working on with me. And so it's new, but it's a, it's a good new. Okay. Uh, well, I love the way you're talking about it because you're just like doing all your thing. And then you're like, well, okay, maybe I'm available now. Maybe I'm available. <laughs> you have the available vibe now. Uh, yes, that's what I'm gonna call it. I'm, I'm available vibing. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So what three things are you loving these days? Oh, you know, despite the chaos of the world, there are some good things that I'm loving. One, I'm traveling more. I um, noticed on your Instagram. Yeah, I, I think a part of it was just like, I was in grad school for the past few years. And so that was just like not an option. And I think connected to the traveling has just been, you know, if you talk to my friends, I'm like every minute of my day is scheduled out. I'm such a planner mm -hmm. and I'm such a like, why would you sitting around? I don't like idle time. We could be doing a million <laughs> things. And I feel like God has really taught me in this last year how to take not just time for myself, but learning how to relax and being okay with being still. Uh, yeah. And that has been just such a blessing to my life. Um, being still, you know, not still like watching TV and still going through your to-do list, like being still, like just allowing life to happen living in like God's presence. And I just got the chance to go to Copenhagen and visit a friend, a dear friend of mine. And we were laughing because she was like, it's five days until you get here. And I was expecting like a PowerPoint of like each day of <laughs> planned out. Right. And I literally just showed up. I rented a bike and every day was just like, whatever happens. And I followed her around. And that is like, so not me, but it was one of the best trips I ever took, you know? Um, so that's one thing I'm loving. I think the second thing would be family. I feel like some of my family members are like going through transition in life, but God giving me the opportunity to get to know them in different ways. My little sister graduates college this weekend and I'm flying up to, for her graduation and she's the baby of the four of us. So uh, I'm just so proud of her. She's had some trying times in college, uh, like through soccer and injuries and transferring schools and, you know, finances. And I just am so proud of not just how she's handled it, but like how she's allowed her testimony to, God, I'm going to like start crying talking Aww. about her. How she's let her testimony just like grow her and grow her peers. And she's become such a leader in like her Christian fellowship on campus. And I'm just, I'm just like super proud of her. Aww, um, you're such a good big sister. So uh, I have my moments. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Third thing. What am I enjoying? You have some really cool Style clothes. So yeah. yeah say style wise I've like really into this like 70s vibe very like simple and like in Copenhagen like the Scandinavian look is very just like 
simplified silhouettes and like monochromatic colors. And yeah, I've been really loving that look this this season. Um, and I'm like a real bargain hunter. Like I don't want to purchase it unless I'll have a story to tell. Like it was 70% off and then it was 95% off. <laughs> It was the last one. Um, and I've I've gotten some really good finds of late. I went to a, uh, there was a vintage fair um, this weekend um, near the, in that 21 space near Urban Outfitters on uh-huh. the drive. And I got to go with like four of my best friends who are like, they're all cool and like fashion bloggers and style bloggers, but we found some really cool stuff and it was a really cool time just to hang out and find some fun things to wear. Y'all, you're so cute because I've been stalking you on Instagram for a while, ever since Haley told me about you. And I'm like, oh, I would, I could never pull off some of the things you pull off. Lies. You could totally it's do not it. lies. It's true. I know what's true <laughs> and I know what's lies and I cannot do it. Um, oh my gosh. Virginia. Okay. Oh my gosh. Well, I didn't even tell people this because you didn't make a big deal about it, but you have a book coming out next year. I do. T- just real quick because we're almost sure. certain. Tell me what your book is about. Sure. So I started when I was in grad school at UT. You know, I love history and I love storytelling. And we had these um, sort of interviews that have been done a few years ago of what we call the precursors, which are the first black students to come to UT to integrate UT. Which was what year? Can you tell me that? Uh, Yeah, so UT was integrated officially in 1950 at the graduate level. The first black student to come was Heman Sweat, and he went to the law school. And it was a four-year lawsuit. Uh, that it took for him to get here. Um, and then UT didn't integrate undergrads until 1956. And then we didn't un- integrate the football team until 1971. Are you serious? Yep. Uh, oh, and dorms. And so we admitted students at undergrad in 56, but we didn't we didn't integrate dorm notorious until 1965, wow. 10 years later. So black students had to live on the east side of Austin or in these co-ops off campus. So I just started, you know, feeling like, oh my gosh, these stories are so important and mm-hmm. not to be bleak, but like they're literally dying off. Like mm. this generation won't be able to tell these stories. And I'm such a firm believer that, you know, when we think about statues and what we've named buildings, that that impacts your experience in spaces. And so for students of color to walk around a campus where they don't even know the history of black students, I'm not just students of color, white students too, I just feel like is an issue. And so I started interviewing all of these precursors and alum. So we interviewed like 40 people. And at first we just started kind of doing a blog online and then talked to UT Press and they were like, this is a book, you should write it. And so Mm. it's the last two years writing it. It's called As We Saw It, The Story of Integration at UT. Um, And it's coming out in 2018 and I'm just feel super honored to just be a part of documenting who I, some people that I just find to be super incredible and getting to know them. And I think we lack as a community right now, intergenerational connection. Mm. And for me to be able to sit underneath these why 70, 80, 90 year olds and hear their stories has just been Mm. a pleasure. So, well, I know that was probably a blessing to you in the midst of it and all that kind of stuff. And I know that it's going to bless all of us. And it's not even just going to be for us in Austin. I mean, these are stories to be told. That's a national story for sure. Because UT kind of set the tone for integrating um, a lot of the South. So it's definitely a national story. 
So love it. Okay, Virginia, this has been such a joy to chat with you. And I'm going to make sure I lead everybody to, uh, especially your Instagram, because it's fun. And we'll tell everybody where they can find everything else. And just thanks for just bringing a really strong voice that we need to hear and listen to to the table. And so thanks a bunch. Well, thank you so much for having me. And um, I just want to thank you for the voice and platform that you've created, not just in Austin, but around the world for women. I think you have a really unique and needed voice. And I'm, I'm, I feel blessed to have been able to talk to you. You're sweet. And I think that we need to make sure that we meet in real life person. Yes, I would love that. Let's okay. make it happen. We'll make that happen. We'll make that happen. Okay, thanks, Virginia. Okay, guys, I told you that you were going to love Virginia. And you did. Am I right? I know I'm right. It was such an honor to talk with her about such important topics that matter to both of us. And no kidding, I loved our feminism talk. I've talked about that with Aaron, my husband, for a long time after our conversation. Guys, go follow her on Instagram. You'll love it. And you'll love seeing her cute outfits as well. I know I said that already, but she has the cutest clothes. Okay, guys, here we go. Are you ready for the August Book Club announcement? The August Book Club, drum roll right here, is Steal Away Home by Matt Carter and my husband, Aaron Ivey. Yes, some of you guys guessed it after I sent out the newsletter last week. But yes, my husband, Aaron, wrote a book with our friend, Matt Carter, and it's called Steal Away Home. And it's about Charles Spurgeon and Thomas Johnson, unlikely friends on the passage to freedom. And this is a book that they have been working on for about three years now. And it is based on historical research, which tells a previously untold story set in the 1800s of the relationship between an African-American missionary and one of the greatest preachers to ever live. And I'm super proud of them for the work they put in this. I'm super proud of Aaron for all he's done. And this is our August read. So this book comes out August 1st. You can pre-order it now. Anywhere books are sold, you can even get it over at jamieivy.com slash store. Look for the books tab and then you can get the book there and it will be mailed out to you the day it releases and we'll start reading. And then we'll have a book club at my house and my husband will be the guest. So that's super fun. Today's show is edited by Chris with Podshaper, and the music is from Jason Poe. Next week, my guest is Christy Wright, and she works with the Dave Ramsey organization over there. So we talk a lot about fun money stuff and women in business and all kinds of fun, fun, fun stuff. She was hilarious and so much fun. So you're going to love it. Guys, enjoy your week. I hope summer is going amazing for you. Share the show with a girlfriend and have a happy hour with a friend. I will see you guys next week with my friend Christy Wright. Bye.